I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but every relationship has expectations. Every relationship has expectations. You could say it this way. Every relationship has certain terms of that relationship. It doesn't matter if it is um, a boss-employee relationship. There are certain terms of that relationship. As an employee, you enter into a working relationship with your boss based on certain terms that are um, already um, stated, hopefully stated and clarified. Um, the same is true not only of a boss-employee relationship, the same is true of a, a parent-child relationship. There are certain terms of that relationship. And who sets the terms of that relationship? If you're a good parent, the parent. The parent does. The parent, the responsibility of the parent is to set the terms of that relationship. A child does not set the terms of that relationship. The parent does. The parent does. In addition, not only even in a parent-child relationship, in a husband-wife relationship. There are certain terms about that relationship. And yes, there should be unconditional love, but there are certain terms, certain expectations, certain realities of that relationship. A spouse doesn't get to do whatever a spouse wants to do. Can I get an amen in the house? There are certain terms to that relationship. It's true of all relationships. All rela even your relationship with Chick-fil-A has terms. If you want to be a signature member, if you want to become signature status with Chick-fil-A, there's certain terms. They just don't let anybody in. I found this out. They don't just let anybody in. Um, you better have your app. You better scan it. You better not forget. Um, one, of, one, of my most, one of the most painful things in my life is showing back home after I've been to Chick-fil-A and I forgot to scan my wife's app code, uh, the QR code. Um, and I have to apologize profusely for days. Um, even your relationship with Chick-fil-A, there's certain terms of that relationship if you want to enter into relationship with Chick-fil-A. Last time I checked, they don't give away food for free. There are certain terms of that relationship. In, in the way that we think about um, a relationship with God, if you think about a relationship with God, I'm going to make a big assumption here that most of the people in the room today are desiring on some level a relationship with God. You must recognize as well that a relationship with God has terms, has expectations, and not only are there terms of the relationship with God, those terms are ultimately His not yours. We are speaking of the God of the universe. We are speaking of the most high God. And when we think about a relationship with God, you come into, you enter into a relationship with God, not based on your terms, but based on his terms. For him to do anything else would actually be unloving. He requires certain terms of that relationship. And just for the record, um, life, all of life is about knowing God. It's about knowing God in a relationship with him. And the reason why God chose to give you existence, the reason why he created you, was not just so that you could consume oxygen for a few decades and then be done, but to have a relationship with him, to know him, to experience him. To, you could say to have a personal relationship with God. A relationship with God where he knows you and you know him. A relationship with God where you seek after him and you find him and he actually guides you personally and he leads you. A relationship where you actually follow him and obey him. That is ultimately what life is about. 
All of life is, is, is about knowing God. Your purpose of your existence is about knowing God and entering into a relationship with God. I feel like part of my role as a pastor, um, I feel like part of my role as a pastor is at least once a week, assuming you're here, um, is to remind you of the most important realities of life. Um, we go throughout our day, and we, we leave here, and we're busy, and we, we got to go to the grocery store this afternoon. We got to get ready for this week, and then we got to make sure that everything's ready for school and for work, and, and, and we, we blaze. We, we just go through our week, weeks, weeks so fast, and there's so many distractions and so many things that are happening, and, and if you can remember and if you can make it happen, you, you show back up to, to corporate worship together, and my, my, my role, part of my role is to remind you of the most important realities of life. Um, to recenter, to, to realign you, to, to say, hey, 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 this is what's most important. This is what part of the role of a prophet is. Part of the role of a prophet is to remind God's people of what's most important, to, rem- to remind God's people of, of what exactly it is that they should be doing. And so I'm essentially saying that um, the most important thing in, in life is a relationship with God. But that relationship with God, you must recognize, is a relationship based on his terms not your terms. Now, most of us actually, most of the people that I'm aware of, that I know in my experience, actually envision a relationship with God on their terms. Most people that I know, I'll say this again, most people that I know and the experience that I have with many people is they actually in all practicality um, operate in a relationship with God as if it is on their terms. For instance, things like this. Well, if, if, I, if, I, if I do this, well, then, then God must do this. If I am like this, if I accomplish this, if I X, Y, or Z, then God will, so on and so forth. But that's not how it works. You don't set the terms of a relationship with God. He does. And today what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you um, the terms of a relationship with God based on our text out out of Acts chapter 23 and 24. And the title for today, it's this, The Line of Surrender. The Line of Surrender of surrender, and I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go further. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, we've been walking through this story of the book of Acts. We're almost at the end. Can you believe it? Um, we're almost at the end of the, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, is, it's the story of God's people. It chronicles the story of God's people in, in the first a few decades after the time of Jesus. It's absolutely amazing, and we've been, we've been chronicling this, this whole story, and now we're near the end. Um, and in the very end of the book of Acts, the last, the last, if I'm right, Pastor Chris, the last eight chapters of the book of Acts is only about Paul's um, arrest and imprisonment and, and what's going to happen to him based on one of, as a leader of God's church. And we're in Acts chapter 23 and 24, and it's a story. And so I'm going to share the story with you and, and, and help you put the story together. And then I'm going to make a few um, applications for what I think this means for us today. And so I'm in, I'm in Acts chapter 23. And right before this, Pastor Chris shared with us that, that Paul had come back to Jerusalem for 10 years, actually, he'd been doing church planting. He'd been traveling around the Gentile world, sharing the good news of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done, how he can change people's lives. And he'd been sharing that message around the world for 10 years, and then he's done with his church planting work, and he recognizes at this stage in his life he must return back to Jerusalem. Everybody tries to stop him, but he goes back to Jerusalem, and as, as Pastor Chris shared with us, he, he went into the temple. Um, everybody lost their minds. They drug him out of the temple, begun to beat him, and then one of the Roman rulers, the Roman commander of that area, their jurisdiction was to maintain order. That, that, that leader's name, as we'll see, is Elysius. 
And the tribune came and intercepted the Jews and Paul and actually saved his life. And now the tribune has been trying to protect him at the expense of the Jews, taking him into their own quarters. And so this is what happens after this tribune intercepts this interaction between the Jews and the Apostle Paul. It says this in verse 30. I'll do at the end of chapter 22 and verse 30 and then into chapter 23. It says this, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, speaking of the tribune, he unbound him, unbound Paul, and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet together. We know this is the Sanhedrin, which um, from what we can tell from, from history and other things, is about 71 of the Jewish religious leaders that come together and form a council and operate as the ruling body of the Jewish people. And the chief priest, the tribune, commands them all to come together and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, And looking intently at the council, uh, Paul said, so Paul's going to open his mouth. Paul's going to speak. This is what comes out of his mouth. Brothers, which would be hard for me to say that at this point. He says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. He's basically saying I am operating in a blameless way before God in all good conscience up to this day. And here's what happens. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So literally, Paul just is opening his mouth, um, telling them about, and Paul, Paul actually hasn't been doing any, they're gonna be false, falsely accusing him over and over again. And Paul's just saying, I'm just living in good conscience before God, doing exactly what God asked me to do. The high priest sends someone over, and they literally strike him uh, on the face. The, the, the violence, continue. they've already beaten him the day before. He shows back up into the council. This is the, this is the ruling religious body. I want you to feel this today. They are in the quarters, in the council of religious leaders. These are essentially pastors of the day. These are the pastors of the day. These are supposed to be the people who are the most loving these are the people who are supposed to be the most gracious. These, if anybody in society is supposed to be the most loving, who's it supposed to be? The religious folk, uh, the religious leaders. And here what we see, and this is the theme that I wanna point out to you today, is the violence that happens among this religious society, among this religious group. And so they, they, they strike him, they strike him in, in the mouth. And, and then, um, and, and then what, what happens is, um, Paul, Paul actually, in a few verses later, he brings up the resurrection, and that's what his whole mission and his whole goal is. He recognizes that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are part of this, part of this council, um, are divided on the principle of the resurrection. And here's what happens. A riot ensues inside the religious quarters. A fight breaks out. Literally, it says a violent riot breaks out inside the religious quarters. Here's what happens. They have a fight at the board meeting. Anybody ever been a part of a board meeting that there was a fight? Um, now, they were literally, this is literally like physical fight. This isn't just words. They're not throwing words around. They're throwing punches. I mean, this religious body, they resort to the point of, of, of violence. I mean, you ever watched um, pro wrestling on TV before? You know, I mean, any pro wrestling fans um, in the house? Um, it's entertaining when it's in a coliseum. It's fake, by the way. Um, but it's entertaining... <laughs> When it's in a coliseum, it's disturbing when it's in a church. It's disturbing when it's in a re religious, a, a group of religious leaders. And violence breaks out. I mean, I mean, I just want you to feel, I want you to feel 
how these religious leaders are responsible for love in society, grace in society, hope in society, and they resort to violence. There's something awfully wrong with what's happening. And so then the, ne the next day, um, the, the, the tribune takes Paul out of the council and, and brings him back to safety because he thinks he's going to get killed in, in, in there. And so he takes him back. And then the next day, here's what happens. A plot uh, is, is formed uh, uh, against the apostle Paul. It says this in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. There's 40 men, and they're like, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm not going to drink anything until this man is dead. These are religious people. Verse 14, then they went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, bring him down to you as though, it's a little bit of a, a trick, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we're ready to kill him before he comes near. They put, they put together a plot to, to, to kill the, the Apostle Paul. Well, what happens, if you read a few verses forward, Paul's nephew actually gets wind of this plot miraculously, and he goes and tells the tribune of it and shares what the Jews are planning to do. And so the tribune, Lysias, during the middle of the night, actually plans an escape for Paul and transports him out of Jerusalem. It says this in verse 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70, 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, all for the Apostle Paul, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which is 3 a.m., and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he escorts him out of Jerusalem, takes him to Caesarea, which is where the governor of the area is living. His name is, is Felix, and now he's under the custody of Felix. And the Jews find out that Paul's been transported and a couple days later. And so the high priest, they hightail it, and they go chase after him again. And they come before Felix, and they begin to even make more false accusations. They even say this in chapter 24, verses four, 5 and eight, five through 8. It says, For we have found this man a plague. You can tell how much they hate him. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And then Paul responds to this false accusation with his own defense in verse 14. He says this, but I confess to you that according to the way, speaking the way of Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He's like, I'm not against the law and the prophets. I actually believe all that stuff. I, this is part of what I'm doing, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then at the end of chapter four, Felix, the governor, actually responds, and he says this in verse 22 and following. But Felix, having rather acute knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs, speaking of Paul. And it says this, when two years had elapsed, Paul's in this situation for two years. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. That's the end of the story for today. Now, I'd like to make a few um, applications based on um, what we are seeing from this situation. What I want you to feel primarily today is, the, is, is a healthy understanding of the reaction of the religious leaders against Paul. Do you see the anger? Do you see the rage 
I mean, do, do you see the, do you see, when's the last time you were really angry about something? When's the last time that you were really enraged about something? And then that resorts, that, that manifests into violence. But if, if you step back, you're like, you're an entire religious body. You have been a religious organization for centuries, actually a few millennia, and now you are so threatened by one man. You are, so, you are losing your minds because of one man. It, you, you, you like cannot stand that this one guy is doing anything contrary to what you're doing. Do you feel how threatened they feel by the Apostle Paul? They see Paul as a threat. There's an insecurity there because what his message is is a conflict to their very own message. At the end of the day, this comes down to their view of the law and the Apostle Paul's view of the law. Just to help you, the Old Testament law was essentially the code or you could say the constitution for the people of God. I'll give you a little bit of a law lesson real quick. Old Testament, um, at the very beginning, um, God decided to form a people for himself. There was, there was, he formed Israel, he formed his own nation out of nothing. He selected a man named Abraham, and he told Abraham, I'm going to form a nation out of you. I'm going to form a people out of you. Now they had no idea what exactly this meant, but God was going to lead them, guide them, shepherd them, direct them into becoming his people. One of the things that God did was he gave them a law. Their law, the law, was intended to be like a constitution. It was supposed to give them a practical code for outlining what it looks like to have a relationship with God, what it looks like to have a relationship with one another. There were things about spiritual things, about um, things with your relationship with God, and then there were practical things, logistical things, a, a lot of different things that were included in the law. Now, there was an expectation that God had, if you were going to be a part of God's people, that you would walk in accordance with his law. Doesn't that make sense? You and I, as citizens, assuming you were a citizen of the United States of America, you were required to walk in accordance with the Constitution of the United States of America. I'm not going to go down that road very far, um, but we have a constitution. That constitution is designed to govern, to lead the affairs of uh, the people of this country. And when we are out of line with that constitution, there are consequences that come in response. The Jews had actually, various times it kind of ebbed and flowed, but they had come to a point where they had actually a high view of the law. Now, I would say, and I would argue that they had an in ordinately high view of the law. Their view of the law had come to a point where they thought that their fidelity to the law would actually produce in them internal righteousness and right relationship with God. They had, and this is actually the way that all humanity works and the way that our hearts work, is that if we just can do the right thing and we can just just make sure that we are good enough and make sure that we are okay, then, then God must have to accept us and be in right relationship. They thought that fidelity to the law produced in them righteousness with God. Right standing with God then came from, or became about rather, what they did, their own moralism and their own diligence. But here's Paul's message. Paul's message was not anti-law, it was pro-Jesus. It wasn't anti-law. Paul's not trying to get rid of the law. Paul's not trying to abolish it. Even Jesus says, I'm not trying to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. 
And Paul's message isn't anti-law, it's actually pro-Jesus. Here's what Paul was doing. Paul is redefining the purposes of the law for one's relationship with God. By the way, do you know that that has to happen for you as well? Redefining, redefining the, the, the purposes of, of how one enters into relationship with God. I'll say it this way. Here's, here, here's a point. If, if you've been waiting for a point, you got your pen ready, you've been ready to write something down, some of you type A people, here's, here's a point. Um, here's, here's a point. Being right with God is not based on fidelity to the law. It's based on fidelity to Jesus. Being right with God. There's a lot of ways that we could say this. A right relationship with God. Entering into relationship with God. Having a relationship with God actually is not based on fidelity to the law. It's based on fidelity to Jesus. Hear me clearly. The law is not the means of grace. Jesus is. Jesus is. The law was something, and here's why this had become such, such an inordinate aspect of their lives as these religious people, that the law had become something that they could perform. The law had become something that they could manage. The law had become something that they could control. See, the problem with moralism, or I'll even say the problem with religion, is that it actually never satisfies. You never really know when you've done enough. Have I done enough? Am I, am I being good enough? Am I, am, am I living right enough? Am I, am I making enough good decisions for God? Am I, am I doing all the right things? The problem with moralism is that it actually never satisfies. You never actually know if you're um, safe or, or not. And rather than fill you with assurance, it fills you with anxiety. Most religious people live their lives not filled with assurance, but actually filled with anxiety. Am I good enough? Did I do enough? I hope that by the end, I hope I'm going to be okay. I hope that I'm going to check all the boxes. I hope that everything is going to work out fine. It doesn't produce assurance. It actually produces anxiety. The beauty of understanding the way that Jesus is our means of, of grace is that it, Jesus actually produces in us assurance. He produces assurance in us. I love the way that Jesus says it in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. You could say people who are trying to do it on their own people who are trying to clean up their life, people who are trying to make themselves presentable before God. Come, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Hear me on this. The law says, come to me, and I will give you stress. Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus does. One of the ways that you recognize and you understand and that you're actually in right relationship with God, that you understand what a right relationship with God is, there's a sense of assurance in your life. There's a sense of assurance. Um, there, there's not anxiety. There's not stress about God. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't ever have any issues or problems or fears or concerns, but it means there's a, there's a central sense of assurance in your life. And so here's, here's what I would like to, to help you understand. Um, I call this the spiritual spectrum. I'll put it on the screen for you. And um, I, I kind of do this to, to help you navigate um, 
the complexities of religion and a relationship with God and, and help you kind of understand um, the, the way that this, this works. So this is the spiritual spectrum. On, on the far left side, you have what is called atheism. Now, atheism is the, the principle that would, that would say there is no God. Uh, the central component, uh, the central tenet of atheism is that there is no God. Um, I shared with this you a, a few times over and over again, but uh, this is actually not the vast majority of people that are in America. Based on the most recent uh, Pew Research, uh, Research statistics, this represents less than 10% of the population that would fall into an atheism category or either an agnosticism category. So this is atheism. The next tick over to your right is theism. Um, theism is the belief that there is a God. This is the person that says there's no God. This is the person that I, there is a God or there is a higher being. There is some kind of divine being. There is some kind of spiritual being. I, I believe that there is a God. Now the next tick over is what I'll call moralism. This is the idea that God accepts me because I am a good person. So not only are you, so you're not an atheist, you're not a theist, but you actually are trying to live right before God. Uh, the moralist says that, well, God accepts me because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You know, I tr try to make sure that my, 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 my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and I'm going to try to be good and operate you know, in a way that hopefully is, is, is good enough for God. That's moralism. And then the last one is Jesus. It's Jesus. And here, here's, what, here's what you could say for um, the principle under, under this category is God accepts me only because of Jesus. God accepts me only because of Jesus. If I could put a line on the screen today, if I could put a line on the screen, and this, let's just, this is rhetorical, so don't say it out loud. Um, but if you could put a line on the screen today, at what point is a person a Christian? At what point is a person, person a Christian? If you had to draw a line in between any of those categories, where would you put the line? That's an important distinction. That's extremely important. And wherever you put that line is what I'll call the line of surrender. That's the line of Christian, and the other side is the line of non-Christian. The place that Scripture, where, speaking spiritually speaking, there's no verse on this, but where Scripture, where Scripture talks about that line is in between moralism and Jesus. That's where the line is. Everything on this side of the line is non-Christian. Doesn't matter if you're trying to be a good person. Doesn't matter if you're trying to be a religious person. Doesn't matter if you believe in a God or a divine being or even, even atheist, whatever. Obviously, that's not. But the line of surrender is this line in between moralism and Jesus. And here's why this is so um, challenging for many of us. And this is why this is so challenging for these religious leaders. What Paul is ultimately doing is he's challenging the concept of how one relates to God. He's challenging how one relates to God. And this is what the gospel does. It fundamentally challenges your concepts of how you relate to God. And the Jews recognize that Paul's message is a threat. And that's often what the gospel does. Oftentimes, before you accept the gospel and receive the gospel, it feels like a threat. It feels like a threat because the gospel says, in me alone do you have salvation. Amen. There's no team players with the gospel. It's not the gospel in your, your grandma. It's not the gospel in your right beliefs. It's not the gospel in your good actions, the gospel in your membership, the gospel in your baptism, the gospel in this, whatever. No, it's the gospel alone is salvation. That's how that works. 
the gospel. The law represented for these Jewish leaders their own personal contribution to their salvation. And therefore, it represented their own identity and value. See, when you begin to tie your salvation to the things that you do, it becomes your identity. It becomes your significance. It becomes your value. And they had tied their identity to their own religious, moral performance. And that's what the gospel threatens. That's what the gospel challenges. I'll say it this way. A relationship with God cannot be earned. It must be received. It must be received. See, grace is received. It's not earned. Let me, can I say it this way? Um, with a relationship with God, it's not God plus something. All right, you, you say it this way. Um, there's no add-ons with God. All right, so it's, it's just God all, all by himself. In, in his own pure essence, nothing else added. Now, how many, how many of you, uh, we, live in, we live in North Carolina, how many of you like barbecue? Any barbecue fans in the house? Now, this is going to be a little bit debatable, okay? I know we have a lot of different opinions about barbecue in the room. Reese, I'm sorry about this, brother, but I know where you land on this one. Um, in my opinion, the best barbecue doesn't need any, um, doesn't need any sauce. Um, now, I, now, I'll eat it. Hey, if we go to Smithfield's today for lunch, I'm eating the barbecue, okay? I'm, I'm going to eat it. I, I'm not, no, but but it, for me, at the end of the day, the, the best barbecue doesn't need an add-on. It, if it's actually good barbecue, the pure essence of the meat is quality enough in order to produce something that's worthy to be tasty. Um, a couple, over, um, over, over 2020 and 2021, anybody else develop some weird COVID habits over 2020 and 2021? One of mine was uh, YouTube. And um, just ask my wife, YouTube has uh, become my new obsession. And... Um, I have, I've subscribed to about 75 different channels, um, and a large majority of those are barbecue channels. And um, if, if you've been in my house lately, um, and if you've been around me lately, you know that I have this project uh, that's happening in, in my backyard, and I'm working on building my own Texas offset smoker um, for brisket. Um, now, it's, it's it a stall in the process of making it. Um, I ran out of funds, so I'm kind of waiting on some. <laughs> Apparently, there's not a budget for this category. Anybody else discover that some COVID habits didn't have a budget? You know, um, anybody else? Um, now, here, here's, here's my obsession. Um, I, I've now, like, developed this healthy obsession uh, for brisket. Um, now, brisket is this portion of the cow. Um, vegans, I'm really sorry. But it's this portion of the cow um, that is actually a, a pretty tough aspect of the body of, of the cow. Um, and it, it, it takes a long time for the, the, the muscle tendons and the fat to render. And for, I mean, upwards, you're talking 12, 14, 16 hours, depending on uh, the cook. The, can I get a name in? Matt Cox. He's one of, he's a... He also has a healthy obsession uh, for brisket. And, um, and, 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 but here, here's, here's, here, here's what I've learned. The best brisket needs no sauce. It, it needs, it's just good all, all by itself. And, and even if you're around like a brisket connoisseur and you suggest sauce, um, you're a heretic. You're a brisket heretic if you suggest sauce on a low and slow brisket. Now, 
here's, here's, the, here's, here's the thing with God. If I could say it this way, God doesn't need any sauce. God doesn't need any of your, God doesn't need for you to like do your part of him accomplishing righteousness for you. God doesn't need you. It's not like God does 90%, but he really needs you to do your 10%, okay? And if you would just clean up yourself, then you would be fine. Most of us approach God with some percentage that if we just did enough, he would accept us and be okay with us. But that's not how the gospel works. It's just not how the gospel works. So what exactly is God offering to us? If God desires to be in a relationship with with us, what exactly is God offering to us? Here's what God is offering. He's offering repentance and belief. Two Bible words. I'll explain them to you. Repentance is it's the Greek word metanoeo. It, it means the transformation. It means the turning. It means the shifting. It's, a, it's ultimately a shifting of the mind. It's a shifting of the mindset, a different way of thinking. And then what is belief? Belief is actually a little bit of a hard, tricky word in, in English because we use it in a lot of different ways. The Greek word pistuo in the verb form for, for the word belief, it actually means if, if you really go down to the root of it, at the root of it, it actually means fidelity. That's why we say faith. Do you have faith in Christ? When we talk about faithfulness, when you are faithful to your spouse, what does that mean? That means you're operating in fidelity to your spouse, that there is a right relationship, that you've received them into relationship with you. It's, 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 it's fidelity. It's, it's just re- receiving them in right relationship with them. And so if, if I was going to... Um, if I was going to help us understand, in other words, what repentance and belief looks like for you and me in our day, and if I had to pick a word today um, that, that, was, that I felt like was most, most helpful, the word that I would pick would be surrender. It would be surrender. Now, and here, here's why. Surrender is getting to the point where you give up. Surrender is give, getting to the point where you wave the white flag. It's getting to the point where you recognize you are at your end. You can't do this anymore. You, you, you cannot win on your own. You surrender. Repentance and belief means that you come to God in a position and a posture of surrender. Do you know that why so many people come to Christ when they're at their rock bottom? Do you know why? When, when, when their marriage is turned upside down, when they've lost a loved one, when they, when they lost their job, when all chaos is breaking out, do, do you know why? Because they've gotten to their end. They've gotten to their rock bottom, and they've gotten to a point in their life where they recognize that they can't do it on their own. That's actually one of the greatest gifts of life. Why does God let bad things happen to you? Why does God let challenges come into your life? Because it humbles us and it brings us to a position where we recognize that we need God and we can't do it on our own. That's surrender. That's the surrender. That's the the line of surrender. I'll say it this way. This is my last point. Salvation is on the other side of surrender. Salvation is on the other side of surrender. And surrender means getting to the point where you've, you're giving up and giving up on whatever else you believed your salvation to be. And here, here's, here's, how I'll, here's how I'll close. Um, there are multiple ways to resist God. And I'll try to help, I'll try to help break this down. There's, I'll, I'll mention two main ways that we resist God. 
A lot of times people think that there's really only just kind of one way to resist God. It's the person that they went to college and they partied hard and they slept around and they did whatever they wanted to do and they just lived a wild and vagrant lifestyle. And that's what we genuinely think of when we think about resisting God. Uh, There's actually two ways to resist God. Uh, We'll call that way um, irreligion. It's irreligion. It, it, it's, it doesn't need God. It's away from God. I'll say that irreligion is finding significance in yourself by not doing what God says. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to get into whatever I want to get into. And we'll call that irreligion. It's finding significance in yourself by not doing what God says. Here's the other way to resist God is religion. Religion. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Religion is about what you do. It's about your contribution to your salvation. It's about how you perform. It's about your own morality. It's about your goodness. It's about thinking about what you can contribute to your own salvation. Religion also is resisting God. It's resisting God because it's not actually receiving what he's offering. I'll say it this way, if, if irreligion is finding significance in yourself by not doing what God says, religion is finding significance in yourself by doing what God says. Meaning I'll, I'll, try, I'll do it all, I'll, I'll do it all, and I'll, 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 I'll make sure that I can accomplish all the things and be moral and be this and, and be that. No, it's not, it's not how it works. You ever seen the, um, you ever seen a, uh, a old Western or, or a, a Western show or movie where they've got to break a horse um, or a wild bronco. You ever seen this? And it takes time and it takes time and a good cowboy and knows how to break a horse and break it, break it. And sometimes it, for some horses, it takes a lot longer than others. And some are more ready to be broken than others. But the horse has to get to a point where it submits and surrenders to what's happening. That's how salvation works. That's how salvation works. It's getting to a point in your life where you you stop resisting, where you stop striving. It's giving up on irreligion and it's giving up on religion. And it's actually receiving what God is offering, which is all of him. You contribute nothing to your salvation. It's receiving all of him and what he has done for you. And surrender is, I like the word surrender because there's no such thing as being like half surrendered, right? There's no such thing as being like, I'm, I'm surrendered most of the way. I'm surrendered like, except for that little 5%, except for that little 10%. No, surrender is, it's complete, isn't it? It's total. It, it's, it's full. And hear me clearly. Here are the terms of a relationship with God. Until you cross the line of surrender, you don't have a relationship with God. Until you cross the line of surrender, you don't have a relationship with God. Nobody gets to heaven by their own accord. Nobody gets to heaven because they helped God get them there. The only way you get to heaven is by acknowledging that you have no reason why you should be there in the first place. And that's what grace is. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. Not God's riches at your good works and you trying hard and you. Here's what that means. Some of you in the room today, this sounds like a threat. Some of you, this might be a little challenging. It's the same thing that was happening in the first century. It's the same thing that was happening to the religious leaders where they had to get to a point where they recognized that the gospel means all of Jesus, 100% Jesus, zero me, trusting and resting on him. That's what surrender is. Hey, would you bow your heads with me, church, as we, as we conclude? Let me give you an opportunity to reflect. Let me give you an opportunity to meditate, to respond. Um, can I ask you a question with, between you and God today? Do you have a surrendered life to God? Can I ask you that? Do you have a surrendered life to God? Are you living in surrender uh, to him? Perhaps today for you is maybe a reminder. Maybe you have lived a surrendered life. Maybe you do know Christ. Maybe you have been walking with him. Maybe you need to return to a position of surrender. And maybe you've never experienced, maybe you've never experienced what the surrendered life is. Today, I would encourage you to repent and to believe to turn from yourself, to turn from anything else that you think is actually earning your salvation and to receive the salvation that God is actually offering you. And when you surrender, you enter into relationship with him. Father, today in Jesus' name, we pray in Jesus' name because it is the only name by which we get you. It's the only name by which we receive you. So God, today we pray in Jesus' name that lead us, Lord, to surrender the right a right relationship with you. Father, I pray for those in the room today that need to, to live a postured life of surrender, that need to take a step of surrender, strengthen them and encourage them today. Lead them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.